90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, can't complain if... All is going according to plan. As the show comes out, I will be flying across the ocean on my way back from a conference in Hawaii. Uh, Yeah, I don't feel sorry for you. I will also be on vacation because that's what I'm going to call your conference is vacation. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to be at a coffee shop in Iowa where it's supposed to be 95 degrees with 80% humidity. So So a reduction from Oklahoma. (laughs) I mean, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) we've been so humid this year it's gonna feel real gross so uh yeah i will be thinking angrily about your location let's just say that all right (laughs) well so in uh our continued march through the solar system this week we're not actually going to go to another planet but we're going to talk about a moon that's right so there's a lot of moons on Jupiter, and we picked one of them, which happens to be a really interesting volcanic moon, and that is Io. Yeah, it's a geologically fascinating moon in one of the most volcanically active places in the solar system. And this week, we're really excited to be talking to Dr. Rosalie Lopez about it. Hi, Rosalie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Rosalie, could you tell us a little bit how you got into planetary geology or as we've learned everybody has a different name for exactly what they do i know you said planetary (laughs) volcanology before the show so could you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are sure uh i actually studied astronomy for my degree in uh, london at university college and i was all ready to study like extra galactic astronomy but in my final year i had a course in planetary geology uh, given uh, by a professor called John Guest. And uh, he was a very good professor, and he made the subject really interesting. And he was a volcanologist. And about three weeks or so into the course, he didn't show up for class one day. And uh, a postdoc showed up and said, um, Mont Etna in Italy erupted, and the professor had to go. <laughs> and I thought, that sounds really exciting. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to go to erupting volcanoes. So I ended up doing a PhD with him. And uh, and that's how uh, uh, how I got there. So you were a senior. Uh, I love it how many times geologists get into geology just by taking an excellent class by an excellent professor. And that makes me super happy that you were able to meld those two things into a job. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the professors really have a lot of influence uh, on the students, I think. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, you said that you wanted to do volcanology and that was exciting, but the volcanoes you study now, you can't really visit, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, uh, uh, you know, I still visit a lot of volcanoes on Earth uh-huh. and uh, um, uh, sometimes for research and often uh, just on vacation and doing some research myself in my spare time. (laughs) (laughs) So have you uh, thought about making it out to Hawaii now? Uh, Yes, I was actually there, although uh, uh, I I was there for a conference and I didn't get close to the current activity. Uh, But um, I've been to Hawaii many times uh, over the last... uh, 
oh, 25 years or so, and I've seen a lot of the activities. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, this one is, uh, is an episode that's particularly vigorous, but it's like nothing particularly new uh, to me. Right. So, so you got your uh, undergraduate degree in astronomy, and then you went on to do a PhD. How does that end up at Jet Propulsion Labs? Uh, well, that was, uh, you know, one of life's coincidences. <laughs> uh, we always have to be open to opportunities. I was finishing my PhD uh, in London, and uh, I worked at the uh, University of London Observatory. My office was there. And uh, uh, a colleague of my professors from JPL uh, decided to call him uh, late one afternoon when the professor had already gone home and I answered the phone. And uh, um, so this colleague from JPL is still here <laughs> uh, called David Peary. And, uh, and we had met at a conference and started chatting and I said I was looking for a postdoc. And he said, oh, NASA has this postdoctoral program that is uh, open to foreigners. And, you know, I was a British citizen. Uh, I'm both British and Brazilian, as well as American now. Uh, and uh, so he sent me the booklet. In those days, it wasn't on the web. It was a, a booklet. <laughs> and uh, I applied uh, to, you know, come work with him. And, and I got it. So that's how I ended up here. So mental note, answer all your advisor's phone calls because you never exactly, know what yes. will happen. <laughs> Uh, because it, you know, it's really uh, uh, these uh, these coincidences. Also, go to conferences yes. because uh, you know we chatted because we had actually met at the conference and chatted there. There you go. We keep saying that's important, so that's not from our <laughs> mar mouths, but from someone else. Um, so, Rosalie, there's a lot of volcanoes in the solar system. What made you focus in on the moons of Jupiter? Well, that was another coincidence as well. <laughs> I, I was studying volcanoes on Mars uh, when uh, I did my PhD and when I came here for my postdoc. Uh, but um, a few months before I came to JPL, I went to another conference and uh, I happened to sit next to uh, a woman about my age. Uh, and uh, she's now at NASA headquarters. She's called Adriano Campo. And uh, she's also a planetary geologist. And I got, we didn't know each other. I got up, gave my talk, uh, sat down again, and, and she turned to me and said, oh, your talk was really good. And, uh, you know, after the session broke up, we started to chat. Turned out she was at JPL. And uh, when I got here, she kind of mentored me, and uh, she introduced me to the Galileo NIMS team. She was working with them. And they uh, ended up offering me a job uh, to do the uh, observation planning and, uh, and, and lead the science for Jupiter's volcanic moon Io. So that's how I got that. <laughs> so, Again, another amazing opportunity. Um, go to conferences, talk to people. Right. And so the Galileo mission... Uh, was a, a pretty long duration mission. So it was operating all the way up until uh, 2003 and launched in uh, 1989. So right. that was, uh, I'm sure there was a massive amount of data collection here, but how did you coordinate 
the the observation schedule because there's so many demands on all of the instruments from everybody that wants to investigate different things. <laughs> yes, I was working with one of the instruments, the near infrared mapping spectrometer, which was amazing for detecting heat from the volcanoes and, and finding volcanoes. Uh, and uh, so my job was to really be the advocate for IO uh, with the uh, NIMS, the near-infrared uh, uh, spectrometer instrument. And, uh, and Galileo also had a complication that our high-gain antenna didn't open. And uh, in fact, I started uh, uh, working on the project um, n not long after we had done the Venus flyby and tried to open the uh, antenna and the antenna didn't open. So we could only use the low gain antenna and the data rate was uh, very small. Uh, and um, uh, I, uh, you know, so the observation planning had to be really, really done well because you had few opportunities to make observations and to get the best science possible. I have said that um, uh, with most missions, uh, like you know, Cassini or the Mars missions, uh, you can compare them to like a, you know one of us tourists these days with a digital camera. You know, you point and shoot, you take lots of pictures, lots of data, and you choose later uh, what's best. Uh, with Galileo, we had to be like Ansel Adams. You had to put a lot of thought into a single shot, a single observation. So it was a very different way of, of doing things. That was an excellent um, image, I think. I don't think people realize what into went into some of these older missions, you know, and on our podcast, we've been talking to other space scientists and, you know, Mercury, way back then, it took a lot more effort than Cassini. That's something that's important to point out, I think. Uh, yes, missions change, and uh, uh, quite a lot, uh, in fact. And um, uh, my ad advisor, in fact, worked on the Viking missions and uh, uh -huh. uh, actually was one of the people who worked on selecting the uh, uh, landing site for Viking 2. And uh, I would hear stories about that. And he also <laughs> worked on Marina 10. And uh, so the missions changed a lot from those days to Galileo, you know, and then I worked on Galileo and later I worked on Cassini. In fact, I'm still uh, working on Cassini, uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, data closeout and, uh, and some archiving. And, uh, and Cassini was a very different mission from Galileo. So you said that you were the advocate for IO. Uh, on the Galileo mission, Io is the, the innermost moon, and it's very, very volcanically active, which explains why you know, you're the advocate for it. Uh, what do we know about the geology of Io? Well, we know that Io is the most volcanically active uh, body in the solar system. Uh, it, it has really enormous rates of volcanism. It has no impact craters. And uh, what that tells you is that the surface is very, very young, so it's being modified constantly. It's being modified by lava flows, uh, by uh, deposits from volcanic plumes. All that, uh, uh, those phenomena are covering up uh, the impact craters, and impact craters mostly happen 
uh, earlier in the history of the solar system. So in gender, in planetary geology, uh, you look at the number of craters on a surface and the sizes of those craters, and that gives you a, a good idea how old that surface is. And Io has this amazingly young surface that is being constantly uh, uh, renewed, uh, let's say, by volcanism. And, and it's, it's really an, an amazing place. Uh, Io has a thin atmosphere, right? Yes. Okay, so do you do any comparisons with like how lava flows in like that thin atmosphere versus here on Earth? Uh, yes, uh, we uh, uh, we have cooling models for the lava flows, and uh, okay. uh, and in the in the lack of an atmosphere, you don't have what we call convective cooling, mm -hmm. uh, but you have uh, radiative cooling that is really what's dominant uh, on Io. Uh, but what influences most the um, size of the lava flows uh, is really the, uh, the the rate of uh, volcanism, the volume. And the and the rate that uh, that it comes out and the volumes are, are really quite large uh, on Io. So, how does lava on Io compare to lava on Earth? Well, uh, the lava flows are a lot longer, and uh, we would dearly love to know the composition of the lava <laughs> flows. <laughs> we. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, we could not get that data uh, with uh, Galileo. And um, the closest that we could get was temperature data. And uh, um, different compositions of lava, uh, if you look at Earth, they melt at different temperatures. Uh, so, uh, you know, for example, basalt uh, melts at a higher temperature than andesite. So uh, if you see, uh, you know, something that is, you know, 1,200 degrees Celsius or so, uh, you know, you say, okay, it's a basalt, it's not an andesite. Um, now, uh, on Io, we got some temperatures that um, are somewhat too high uh, to be uh, basalts, uh, but they're kind of right at the limit between uh, basalt and ultramafic, and ultramafic is a primitive type of lava that we no longer see on Earth. Uh, and... Um, but when you're looking with remote sensing, and we were looking from great distances at uh, uh, w with pixels that uh, were um, at best, you know, a few kilometers. Uh, so, but most of the time we were looking at aisle um, uh, with from great distances and pixels were, you know, 200, 400 kilometers uh, square. Uh, so that's dominated by the, the, the cooler lavas because lavas cool pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's hard to measure the temperature of the hottest, hottest lavas unless you have high spatial resolution. Uh, and uh, uh, so those temperatures we got, we, we don't know if they are basalts or if they are ultramafic lavas that have cooled somewhat. Uh, so that's still kind of on the hairy edge, and uh, and we're not sure. Uh, if we um, find out that lava uh, that lavas on Io are indeed ultramafic, uh, that is really interesting because we no longer see those lavas on Earth. Uh, so that's a way of looking at the at the primitive Earth. 
uh, ultramafic magmas mostly erupted billions of years ago. So to get this really hot lava, what I mean, are, are there tectonics that are active on Io, or where's all this heat and overturn coming from? Okay, uh, Io has no plate tectonics. Uh, in fact, it's interesting that uh, so far we have not found evidence of plate tectonics anywhere in the solar system at any uh, uh, planet or moon that we looked at. Uh, now, um, Io does have some mountains, but, you know, really the heat is coming from um, uh, tidal dissipation. Io is uh, a pull towards Jupiter in its orbit. Jupiter is very big, so there is a tidal bulge that uh, uh, faces Jupiter. It's a bit like the, the tides on Earth. Uh, but the characteristic uh, of Io's orbit is that it is tidally locked uh, with the orbits of Europa and, uh, and Ganymede and Callisto. So there is this tidal bulge that uh, wants to point towards Jupiter, but the other moons that are smaller than Jupiter, but they are much closer than Io, um, they are much closer to Io than Jupiter, they, they pull the bulge towards them. And so it's this push-pull and this distortion that keeps the interior molten. Uh, otherwise, Io, being about the size of the Earth's moon, would have cooled a long time ago. Did, did, was this something that we expected to see when we looked at Io, uh, or was this a, a surprise to us? Well, actually, uh, you expected to see it if you happen to be reading, uh, you know, all the science magazines that at that time uh, arrived in your library uh, by mail, because only about two weeks before, there was a, a paper published in Science by uh, Stan Peel and colleagues that looked at the orbit of Io and the orbit of the other Galilean satellites, and they... Um, and they actually predicted that there would be this uh, uh, tidal heating. And they said in the paper that, uh, you know, uh, a recurrent and widespread volcanism might occur. And I think it was <laughs> the, the best prediction of all time. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, I would uh, I'd go gambling with them after that one. Um, <laughs> so Io is about the size of our moon, roughly, right? Um, yeah. But how does the volcanism on Io differ from other volcanic moons in that neighborhood? Uh, well, Io actually has uh, a silicate volcanism. Okay. It might it might have uh, some sulfur volcanism as well, but we we're not sure about that. Uh, it certainly has a lot of sulfur dioxide uh, on the surface and and coming out of the plumes. Uh, but the the, uh, the the lava that's coming out uh, is either basalt or ultramafic. Uh, but the other moons are very different. The other moons are what we call ocean worlds, that is uh, Europa, Ganymede, and, and Callisto. Uh, particularly Europa and Ganymede um, have still oceans of liquid water under their icy crusts. Mm -hmm. So Europa has volcanism, uh, uh, we uh, now have gathered more and more evidence that there are uh, these faint plumes uh, that uh, uh, erupt now and then. Uh, but that is cryovolcanism. It is uh, a cold volcanism. It's actually water uh, or water with some other 
uh, compounds coming from uh, the interior of the moon. Uh, the uh, Enceladus uh, also has cryovolcanism, and we think that Titan uh, have had it in the past. Uh, so um, it's it's very different from silicate volcanism. It's still volcanism, uh, as you define volcanism being a process that brings magma from the interior of a body to the surface. But what that magma is may be different for each body. Uh, so on on Earth, on Io, uh, in, uh, on Venus, uh, you know the, the magma was all. Um, is or was all uh, silicate in you know, Mars as well. But on these uh, ocean worlds, the magma is actually water. I'm always shocked at how weird <laughs> things are in the outer yes. solar system. <laughs> um, and I, I'm still stuck on the whole plate tectonics thing. That's really because, you know, we teach our intro geology classes and it's all volcanism is plate tectonics. And it's just so surprising to me that the most volcanically active thing in the solar system doesn't really have any. <laughs> well, in order to have plate tectonics, uh, as you know, you need several things. And the, uh, if your uh, crust is too thick, like um, in our Mars, we think mm -hmm. maybe there was a, an attempt at plate tectonics. There was certainly some rifting, like cause Valles Marineris, uh, right. but, um, you know, the, the, the crust cannot, uh, you know, bend, and also in the absence of uh, water to lubricate, uh, it, it's hard to actually get plates moving uh, and uh, subducting. Uh, in, so, um, uh, it's interesting, really, that uh, uh, we have found no plate tectonics uh, on other planets or moons. Uh, if the crust is too thin, too skinny, uh, maybe like on Europa, it just breaks up into a lot of pieces. And um, I'm not an expert on this, um, but, uh, you know, uh, from what I know, uh, you have to have a, a certain, if you don't have a certain uh, optimal thickness of crust, uh, it doesn't work and uh, and you also need water to uh, lubricate uh, right. the plates uh, and um, so it might be you know like a little Goldilocks things that um, you know, can't be too thin <laughs> or too thick. Right. So you mentioned sulfur and sulfur dioxide and looking at some of the color corrected pictures of Io it is just this big yellow green ball. Is that sulfur dioxide ejected from the volcanoes and settles on the surface or where's that coming from? Uh, it's sulfur and sulfur dioxide. Yes, Io has no water. Uh, so the, the volatile uh, is uh, uh, sulfur dioxide that, uh, and also sulfur comes out in the plumes. Uh, so sulfur dioxide has been detected uh, on the plumes and also sulfur. And the colors, uh, well, um, uh, it, the, uh, the colors varies from, you know, whites to yellows, and there are different allotropes of sulfur uh, that come out from the plumes. The, 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 the reds are supposedly S4, uh, uh, the, um, you know, and they turn to yellowish uh, eventually if they are not replenished. Uh, the uh, blacks are all lava or, um, uh, or ash. Uh, and uh, and the greens uh, we're not 
terribly sure what they are. A colleague of mine called them the the golf courses of Io, and, uh, uh, and because there are some places that are really green, and uh, and we think again is is a is a thin layer of sulfur. Sulfur can actually take many colors uh, depending on impurities and depending on temperatures. You know, if it settles on on something warm, um, so uh, uh, we think that. You know, most of the the, the pizza-like appearance of Io uh, is due to uh, to self, different sulfur uh, allotropes, and uh, and it was that that in Voyager days actually started the idea that Io's volcanism was all sulfur and the flows were sulfur flows. Uh, now we know that that's not true because the temperatures we detected are too hot. Uh, for sulfur, but there could still be some sulfur flows on the surface, and we have found some features that um, may well um, be sulfur flows, uh, but uh, we have no uh, composition measurements, which is a real handicap. I can't imagine how frustrating that is to <laughs> have studied it so much and not actually be able to hold a piece of this lava in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think a, a sample return mission uh, uh, to Iowa would be a, a great thing, but uh, it may take a while. <laughs> oh, so true. Um, so these moons, we've been talking about Io and a bunch of other ones, but in these gas giants, are these just captured planetesimals? They're also different. How did they get there? Uh, well, uh, you know, a few moons may be captured, like uh, Phoebe, uh, who, which is around Saturn. Um, mm -hmm. But in the case of the Galilean satellites, we think that they were actually formed uh, in place. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, uh, uh, they are they are almost like a mini solar system uh, that they were, you know, they they were formed like we know our planets have. Uh, somewhat different compositions, and uh, uh, so presumably it was all for formed out of a uh, the the gas cloud um, that um, that formed Jupiter. And so Jupiter was just big enough that that's what they coalesced around. Yes, you know, again, that's not my expertise, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, you know, this is what I understand. Hmm. So I guess that's there are so many. Uh, of the moons, and they're also different. That's uh, an interesting thing to think about, is that there is a completely separate, if you will, gas cloud that all of these formed out of. Uh, is Io a typical size for one of the Galilean moons, or is it smaller? Uh, it, yes, it's, uh, uh, it, it, you know, Ganymede is larger, you know, Callisto is a little larger, but, um, you know, in terms of... Um, they're all fairly large moons, you know, Ganymede being the largest moon in the solar system. So if Ganymede was not um, around Jupiter, we would consider it a planet. And uh, maybe we would consider all these Galilean satellites planets. Right. So you worked on all this data from Galileo and worked on data from Cassini. Uh, what is next for you in terms of missions or things that you're excited about to further study the Galilean moons? Well, I'm still doing a little work on Io. Um, you know, not a lot these days. Uh, I'm focusing on Titan, a moon of Saturn that's really fascinating. And I have uh, 
uh, done a lot of studies on the uh, geology of Titan and also on uh, identifying uh, features that uh, we think are cryovolcanoes. Uh, and uh, I just uh, actually started a project which is to uh, look at the possibility of habitability on Titan. And, uh, and that is with a large team, is part of the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And uh, it's quite new for me because I'm not really an astrobiologist, or at least not yet. But what we're looking at is uh, Titan, this moon of Saturn, has a lot of organic materials. And how these materials uh, uh, fall from the atmosphere to the surface, how they are modified, how they could get uh, into the ocean uh, from the surface, and then how these organic compounds in the ocean, uh, even in those conditions of high pressure, if they could um, um, actually give rise to life, and then could uh, these biosignatures make their way to the surface via cryovolcanism and be detectable. So this is a five-year project with a big team that I just started and I'm leading. So uh, this is very exciting and it's going to keep me busy for quite a while. <laughs> so does a lot of your work involve, you know, you get data that's been downlinked and then you're doing modeling or working in MATLAB or R to process this data? Or is a lot of the processing done and you're doing geologic interpretation of it? Well, what's, what's your workflow? Well, uh, that um, it, you know, depends very much uh, on the project. And uh, uh, you know, typically, uh, there is data processing that uh, is done before it gets to me. Uh, like with Cassini, uh, I work with the radar instrument and, uh, and, and radar data processing. That's something that the radar engineers do. Uh, so when it gets to me, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the synthetic aperture radar images and, uh, uh, you know, and other uh, scattering properties and, and so on. And uh, with the Cassini radar data, I uh, work a lot with um, uh, a GIS uh, software uh, to make maps, to make geologic maps, to uh, do interpretation, to look at distribution of different geologic processes on different parts of the moon and so on. Uh, with Galileo, I... Uh, uh, I looked at uh, you know, thermal data uh, from Io, and it was a thermal imager that I worked with. So we had these pixels, and uh, and I did a lot of painstaking pixel-by-pixel pixel comparison to find uh, hot spots. And I'm actually pretty proud of the fact that I found 71 previously unknown volcanoes on Io. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and actually, I eventually ended up in the uh, 2006 Guinness Book of World Records because of that, <laughs> <laughs> which was very funny. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I found more... Uh, uh, at least, you know, uh, up to now, I think, more um, active volcanoes than anybody anywhere. <laughs> so, Rosalie, I teach field geology, and it's always exciting to me that all these planetary scientists we're talking about, there's always this field aspect to their work. And so you're doing exactly what we do here, using GIS to make geologic maps, except with images of Io, and that makes me so happy. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. <laughs> so one of the questions that we've been asking everybody that we've had on for this planetary geology series is if you could travel to your favorite, in this case, moon or solar system body and live there for a month, what would you do? Ooh, wow. I, um, it, it is really hard to decide between Io and Titan. Uh, and uh, uh, if you could live on Io for a month, uh, that would be very hard because the radiation around there is pretty deadly. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, uh, if you could, uh, one thing I would do is uh, really go investigate uh, these volcanoes that I think are lava lakes. And in fact, I identified several as lava lakes uh, from the Galileo data. And I would uh, collect samples and measure temperatures and figure out their composition. And also, uh, you know, really how they work as lava lakes. Are they very similar to the ones on Earth? And this is something I've been doing field work on Earth to try to figure out. Uh, and, um, you know, and I ended up going to some pretty exciting locations. There are very few lava lakes on Earth, but um, we think that there are a lot on, on Io. It might be the predominant type of volcanism. So uh, I have had a lot of fun going to lava lakes in places like uh, Ethiopia and uh, Vanuatu, mm -hmm. and even Erebus on Antarctica. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> so what, when you're doing work on Earth and doing these comparisons, do you use a lot of remote sensing data and the same types of tools as well as go there in the field? Uh, well, I haven't personally used um, remote sensing data. Some of my colleagues have. Um, mostly uh, the colleagues I work with, uh, we have actually taken um, instruments to the field and, um, and, and uh, what we are uh, you know, uh, you know, developing is um, uh, small portable instruments, particularly one of my colleagues um, from Wyoming uh, is developing that. Uh, and something that is very small can be carried easily and um, uh, you can look, it's like a mini imaging spectrometer and uh, you can uh, take data at several wavelengths, but uh, you know, it's very cheap. Uh, so um, uh, you don't have to worry about it uh, being damaged, you know, so much. Right. And I've seen some pretty interesting work uh, recently with folks strapping all kinds of instruments onto drones. Uh, here oh, yes. And flying them yes. around. That seems like a really nice uh, potential field collection opportunity. Yes, yes. Uh, drones are actually doing some uh, amazing work. As long as you're willing to sacrifice a few of them. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, actually, when we, uh, 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 some colleagues and I went to Vanuatu, uh, we actually took a couple of kites and uh, uh, just as an experiment and, uh, and uh, put, um, you know, small cameras on kites. And, uh, you know, that can work quite well, too. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, a, a while back, probably a couple of years ago, we talked about the famous 1906 uh, San Francisco earthquake picture that was taken from a kite. So that's uh, interesting that it's still one of the more reliable yeah. ways. <laughs> no, <laughs> yes, no, right. no batteries required. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rosalie, is there anything else that you'd like to add or tell folks that are listening? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. You know, I just, um, just would like to say that, uh, you know, 
planetary uh, geology is um, is really really interesting, and uh, there are a lot of uh, different planets and moons we have explored, and uh, and we have a lot of data. So uh, there is a lot there to do. All right, and if folks want to find you and uh, follow your research and the progress of the missions, uh, what's the best way to find you on the internet? Uh, I would say is uh, you know Facebook. Um, I uh, I'm kind of reaching my friends limit, I think, but uh, I, uh, <laughs> I I try to post a lot of public things, and uh, you know particularly with um, uh, general results of research from NASA. Uh, so uh, people can follow me on Facebook, Rosalie Lopez, and um, uh, I do a little Twitter, but uh, you know, not uh, not a lot yet. I tend to prefer Facebook. All right, great. We will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks. Oh, thank you so much. It was fun talking to you. Well, Shannon, it sounds like we have a, have a a lava to learn about. I. <laughs> Oh, I hope you've been saving that for a while. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty good. Um, I was really excited. We had to go to the moons to find geology in these outer planets. And that was a lot of geology. (laughs) Yes. The the moons kind of seem like more interesting places. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, they really do. I mean, yeah, because I like rocks a little bit better than atmospheres. But still, Jupiter and its surrounding satellites extremely exciting so exciting i might have to watch a movie to you know take a break (laughs) yeah you watch a movie relax and uh read this week's fun paper friday (laughs) um man i just can't stay away from the british medical journals christmas issues and that's uh where this comes from and it is resting (laughs) energy expenditure substrate use and videotapes by cooper et al and this paper examines, do you burn more calories? Do you metabolize faster when you're watching certain kinds of movies? Right. And because it's in the British Medical Journal, obviously Blackadder makes it in here, which makes me so happy. <laughs> you know, uh, to continue the trend from last week's fun paper, I haven't seen these. Oh, of course you <laughs> haven't. Oh, my gosh. Somebody needs to chill out and relax and measure their metabolism as well <laughs> that's that's you john <laughs> so i thought this was actually a pretty pretty interesting i mean it's obviously silly like most of these fun papers are uh from the bmj christmas issue but there's also actual science behind it um and so they used the normal ways you measure metabolism which clearly you and i are not super familiar with um, but that's connecting these people up to a heart rate monitor and uh, what else did they use? An ear probe thermometer. And yeah, I think, was that it? I think those are the main two instruments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they did that um, to try to measure, just like you said, are you going to actually burn more calories based on the type of film that you're going to watch? Well, and there is a hint of actual usefulness here because when they are doing metabolic studies for real, uh, they subjects have to fast overnight, and then they have to be in a quiet, temperature-controlled, very temperature-stable room, and they want them to relax before the research starts, so they often let them relax by watching some TV. 
So the question is, could what kind of TV they're watching change the results of the experiment? I thought that was brilliant. This is actually something that needed to be done. So this is kind of my point is like, while these are funny, they're still very scientifically valid papers. You know, there was there was actually an article in Slate that was kind of knocking knocking these things and how, you know, people might take these seriously and we need to be more responsible. Well, it is a serious study. Like, it's funny, but that's a real deal, right? Because you've got all these metabolic um, measurements that are happening. And if you're affecting them inadvertently in every single study about metabolizing, <laughs> that's a problem. Right. <laughs> and so the way they did this was they had the subjects... I watched 10 minute clips from different films and 10 minutes of a blank screen, which was thrilling, but we've all done it after yep. the DVD stops. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the films were a pleasant film, death on the Nile, uh, an exciting film, which was alien <laughs> and an amusing film, which was Blackadder. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> it's actually Blackadder goes forth private plane because there's a Blackadder series too. So, you know, not that it matters, but since you haven't seen it, John, I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they also note in here that they obtained permission from the film distribution companies and the hospital had a valid public broadcast license at the time of the study. <laughs> yeah, this was legit. <laughs> so they showed these in different sequences mm-hmm. to their subjects, mm-hmm. uh, which they had 12 people participate. And they measured their response. So what was what did they find out? I mean, the good thing is you're probably not really messing up your metabolic um, studies because there's not really a difference between any of them. It said it actually said that's the interesting part was that during the exciting film, which was <laughs> where the alien pops out of John Hurt's abdomen. <laughs> In the movie Alien, right. yeah, uh, that there was like a wide range in heart rates between the subjects. Um, eight out of twelve of them, I think it said, sort of increased temperature, but there was nothing that was statistically significant. And so it really appears that it doesn't matter what they watch; it's all relaxing. And the other thing is, none of it will actually uh, burn calories. So, well, so if you. <laughs> If you believe that the people that watched Alien and had the the small jump in heart rate, if you say, okay, let's say that is a truth, it's not a a small, trivial, Mm -hmm. non-statistically significant thing. What if it's true? Okay, so that's about 209 kilojoules per day, which they said means that by watching that movie, you would about offset the calories from one handful of the kettle corn that you're eating. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Not even worth it. <laughs> so instead, they uh, they say that uh, this cannot be recommended as a reliable method of losing weight. Instead, responding to the call of the exercise bike jogging kit and taking the dog for a walk is still the only sure way of meaningfully raising energy expenditure to counteract seasonal weight gain. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I'm definitely going to whip this out at the next Christmas party I go to. <laughs> What Christmas party do you go to? <laughs> uh, none, none. It's going to be years before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and after I do this and bring this up, I'll never be invited again. So, you know. <laughs> yep. Uh, no, so this was a pretty interesting paper, and it 
did make me think, you know, how hard would it be to put a heart rate monitor on when you're watching movies? Yeah, exactly. And it makes you think that you really need to cover all your bases and your experimental setup because if there was a significant difference, this could be a problem. Absolutely. Depends on if somebody chose to watch, you know, the news or <laughs> uh, a scary movie yeah. or mm-hmm. commercials or shopping network. Yeah, yeah it could be. It'd be interesting to actually add the news into here now. I was just going to say, I think we'd all know that everyone's heart rate would <laughs> drastically <Yeah>. spike, <laughs> like no matter where you live on the spectrum. Like <laughs> that's just a stressful hour that I don't need. Exactly. Well, if you have some data from your heart rate and temperature while you were watching various movies and have calculated your metabolic offset from watching that movie, we'd love to see those results. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send those to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can also get a hold of us on Twitter and let us know your thoughts about John Hurt's Alien. Um, <laughs> and that is at Don't Panic Geo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. And you can come hang out with us in the Slack chat room where the software underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you feel that we are adding value to your life and would like to support us, you may do so too. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or